Okay, so like I just mentioned, we're going to walk through the doctrine of election. Um, and I was very tempted to start this study off with a, a, a little segment on total depravity um, because I think understanding total depravity helps us to um, better understand election. And, um, but I chose not to because you can revisit that lecture, which was a couple of weeks ago, um, lecture number seven, if I'm not mistaken, on what is sin and who is Christ. So um, with that there, which you can visit, I'll just go ahead and dive into election. So what is election? Election defined. Um, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Because of his sovereign good pleasure. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 3 of God's decrees reads, but the decree of God, I'm sorry, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels um, are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. So notice to the praise of his glorious grace and to the praise of his glorious justice. The doctrine of election should only ever promote praise to God and humility in men. Praise to God and humility in men. No one should boast that they have been elected. That's not a character trait of someone who the Lord has chosen not because of anything in them. It only should stir up humility and thanksgiving. New Testament teachings on the doctrine of election. So God ordained beforehand those who would be saved. Let's turn over to Acts 13, Acts 13, 48. I'm just going to read this verse. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Notice there, again, it's not those who, uh, they, they believed, so they were appointed. He says, as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. I think Luke is intentional in the way he wrote this here. As many were appointed, believed. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, I'm going to read for you. <clears throat> Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, chosen in him. And then again, this constant refrain, to the praise of his glorious grace, the right reaction to understanding election and predestination. Okay? So God saves us and calls us to himself not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose 
and his unmerited grace and eternity past. His unmerited grace and eternity past. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, speaking of God here, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Revelation 17.8 says, the beast that you saw was and is not I'm sorry, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17, 8, from before the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So again, before the foundation of the world. And then Titus 3.5, I'm going to read that for you as well. I think Titus 3.5, you really can't, it really doesn't get any more clear than this. Titus 3.5, he saved us, why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's, it's, let me make this as plain as possible, he says in writing this. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, All right? So no one's works uh, will save them. Neither has anyone's works caused them to have been predestined or chosen by God. That is foundational to understand in the doctrine of election. It is not by works. And this is the constant refrain throughout the New Testament, throughout the Pauline epistles. It is not by your works, okay? So... What this means is it is important to note that these New Testament authors often present the doctrine of election as a comfort to all who believe in Jesus. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Election is thus a cause for comfort and for assurance that God will work for our good today by his own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who saved us again and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I also think of Romans 8.30, um, that predestined, called, justified, glorified, God will bring you to the end, this, 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 this stirring of assurance that God will bring us to the end. So present trials ultimately only serve the purposes of God to sanctify you so that you may be spotless and blameless before the presence of God in the end. So this, in, in, in Romans 8.30, you see this sort of chain, um, this predestination that's being called, this justified, this glorified, this, you know, and then sanctified in there. Uh, it's, it, it's, one, it's one chain. It's linked together. So those who are predestined, those who are chosen and justified will be glorified. So what that means is any, any trial that rises 
that threatens to cause you to fold in your faith, you can confidently say, the Lord will carry me to the end. I will be sustained. I won't implode. I won't turn away from the Lord. He has guarded our salvation in Christ at his right hand at the throne. So it really does stir up confidence in our hearts, or it should stir up confidence in our hearts. And again, I can't help but think of um, Ezekiel 36.2. I'm sorry, 36.22 to 36.20, what's that, 20.23. And I think of this passage, I think that this passage should, again, further stir our hearts in humility as we consider God's sovereign electing purposes. Ezekiel 36.22 to 23 says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is for the sake of my holy name. The believer is sustained, he's called, he's elected, he's glorified for the sake of God's holy name. Again, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. All of us have trampled on the holy name of God and our actions, our thoughts and deeds And yet God, in his sovereign mercy, chooses to save men and draw them to himself. Okay, so again, just displaying God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace in election, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Continuing on this point, what does this mean? Um, A natural response to God's work on our behalf is that of praise and thanksgiving giving. We should live to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.12 says, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We should give thanks to God for those he has chosen. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering, I'm sorry, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul, he he actually gives thanks to God for choosing, right? He doesn't, he's not waving his fist at the heavens saying, Why Simon, not others? He's not bubbling with hostility toward God. He says, Lord, we thank you that you have chosen some for yourself. Again, the right, the proper response in our heart should be thanksgiving. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of truth, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. What's that? The word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Again, thanksgiving for God's purposes in election and his choosing for his own uh, purposes, for his own glory, according to his own sovereign will. Yet, 
Knowing this, we should not think that our work of evangelism is unimportant. So we ought to be evangelizing. We ought to be taking advantage of opportunities that the Lord gives us to share the gospel. We should be purposeful to go and share the gospel um, in our everyday lives, praying and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. When God chooses people to be saved, he carries this out through human means. All right, so uh, 2 Timothy 2.10, I'll read first here. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So this is just so interesting. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, the elect, that they may obtain salvation. They're elect, so won't they obtain salvation? Why, why would Paul say this? and Why does he word it this way? Paul understands predestination and election and justification and sanctification and redemption, yet it does not make him slow to proclaim the gospel or lax and cavalier in his zeal. He endures all things for the sake of the elect. And we know some of the things that Paul endured for the sake of the elect, right? Beatings, shipwrecked, you know, suffering under just intense persecution, being stoned, dragged out of the city, thought to be dead, gets up and by God's power goes back to the city where he was just stoned. It's, it's insane. And it's God working. And this is a picture of Paul enduring all things for the sake of you who are elect. You're elected, but I'm going to be stoned for proclaiming the gospel to those who would come to believe. It's, it's mind-blowing. Romans 10.14 says, How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have, not, they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we have become uh, beneficiaries or the fruit of the proclamation of the gospel through the apostles. Right? So we have believed in the message of Christ as the apostles proclaim it, made disciples. Those men proclaim it and make disciples. We are in the faith because we heard the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, you heard the word of truth. So someone's proclaiming it. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of our, of our salvation, and believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of election does not cause us to stand still and say, well, God, he'll get his elect. He's going to go out there and get them. He has his means. He'll do it. No, the, the means is the proclamation of the gospel, the, the, the speaking, the telling of the gospel, and God opening men's ears and eyes and hearts to receive and hear and turn away from their sin. So we believe in election and we proclaim the gospel. Okay. All right, so what election does not mean? What the doctrine of election does not mean? Affirming the doctrine of election does not mean that our choices don't matter and our actions don't have consequences. Nor does, the doctrine, nor does this doctrine require us to affirm an impersonal, inflexible universe that is controlled by an impersonal, inflexible force. And I'll sort of flesh that out in a bit here. So 
Our decisions do have consequences. God has given us uh, will. We have a, a free will, which we'll, we'll look at in a sec here, and we'll qualify that as well. Uh, but continuing on this, uh, salvation is brought about by a personal God who deeply loves his creatures. <clears throat> he deeply loved his creatures. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then Romans 8.28 again, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And we know that we love God, as 1 John tells us, because he first loved us. This isn't something stirred in us of our own will. This is God's doing, right? Scripture views us as personal creatures who make willing choices to accept or reject the gospel. Um, oftentimes, we in the Reformed faith, as, as Reformed Baptists, we can reject and accept. Those can be sometimes scary words. as well. We know that men are elected and called. But at the same time, the gospel is laid out before men, and they have a choice. They, they choose to reject the gospel, and they choose to, or they choose to accept. But we know, again, as Reformed Baptists, how this happens. We know the foundation of this uh, acceptance in God choosing men, which I'll talk about a bit here. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The spirit of the bride say, come, and let those who hears and let those who hear say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who, who desires take the water of life without price. Come, he says. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who, labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John three eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We do have a choice. We choose according to our greatest desire, right? We do have a choice, um, and our hardened hearts steer that choice as, as concerns salvation. So while a proper understanding of election does, not, does give real value to our decisions and choices, it does not mean that God's decision was based upon our choices. Okay, so we do have real choices, but God's decision to elect wasn't based upon our choices. Scripture never speaks of faith, present or future, as the reason God chose to save someone. When God chose individuals before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, he did not do so because he foresaw their faith or some decision they would make. We have to make that distinction. Paul affirms this in Romans 8.29 when he writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. When Paul speaks about God's foreknowledge, he is thinking of God as knowing persons through whom. So God foreknew these individuals in the context of a saving relationship with them. This is different from speaking about foreknowledge of an individual's actions or decisions, such as a decision to believe. So 
This is not saying that God foreknew them in a sense of him sort of uh, gazing down the corridors of time and, and seeing that they would choose him and then choosing them upon that. No, it's, it's, this is apart from that. This is speaking of something different. Right? So the foreknowledge of God is not a reference to, again, him looking down the corridors of time. God has determined how he will, it's not God sort of seeing how someone will react to the gospel and choosing them because of that. If election were ultimately based on our decision, it would seem to diminish God's love, cheapen his grace, for there would be some merit on our part, and diminish the glory that is due him for our salvation. Right? So our inability to choose God ourselves brings more glory, further glory to God and him choosing to save men because of his own good purposes and his sovereignty in that. All right, next point here. And this is, I'm going to try and spend a little time on this. So are we really free? Free will. Are we really free? If, if all this is true, then are we really free? Many believe that if the doctrine of election is true, then we aren't really free. The difficulty in thinking this way is that many different definitions and assumptions surround the word free. And these differences easily lead to misunderstanding and disagreement. Again, in the 1689 Confession, in chapter 9 of free will, it reads, God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of action upon choice, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Man has a choice. Man has a choice. The issue is that he chooses evil. But we have a choice. The Bible appeals to our ability to make voluntary choices and willing choices. We aren't forced to make choices contrary to our own will. We ultimately do what we desire to do and what we most desire. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We only ever do what we most desire. The 1689 again says in chapter 9, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability or will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether reversed or strongly opposed from that good and dead in sin is not able to, by his own strength, convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. The depth and scope of our depravity is so total that we don't have the ability to do any spiritual good at all. Right? So we can choose whatever we want, whatever we desire. The problem is we desire sinful things. Our freedom is bound by our fallen wills, which our own actions attest to. And so we desire all things that stand in opposition to a holy God. We desire all things that stand up in opposition to a holy God by nature. 
Making choices is part of what it means to be human beings in God's image. So again, we do have choices. God works through our choices and desires to bring about his plan. This preservation, um, I'm sorry, the, this preserves our ability to choose willingly while at the same time assuring that our choices will be in accord with the God, with what God decided and ordained would happen. If we respond to the gospel in a positive way, we can honestly say that we chose to respond to Christ while also saying that it was, and this is a mystery, ordained by God. We can't always fully understand how these two things can be true at the same time. At least in this age, we cannot completely grasp this mystery. And although we do not fully understand it, we should at least be sure to speak the way the Bible speaks about this and in all other aspects of its teaching. So we are free to choose. We just, by nature, choose the wrong thing. Furthermore, God also created us so that our choices would be real choices. However, our choices do not need to be absolutely free of any involvement by God in order to be real, voluntary, willing choices. What does that mean? We make a choice to breathe many times every day. You're breathing now. Making a choice to breathe, hopefully, and living, right? God, as our creator and sustainer, is intrinsically involved with us in that decision. For God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.1, and Christ continually, this is good, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So our, our breathing and our living, this isn't separate from Christ, who is currently upholding galaxies and solar systems and planets as they rotate on their axis around us. Christ is upholding this by the word of his power. So freedom, as some would understand it, freedom does not mean a complete separation. All right, he's getting some going. Freedom does not mean a complete separation from God's sovereign working and doing. All right, where am I here? Okay, so another point I wanted to make here, and this is something I've heard R.C. Sproul say many times. Um, He says that there is no maverick molecule in the universe, and if there is, then God is not sovereign. But this does not mean that we are not free in our choices. There are no maverick molecules in the universe, right? God is completely sovereign over all things. Let's praise the Lord for the PowerPoint (laughs) working. (laughs) This thing has been a challenge. But thank you, Scott. You are. So you have a really old projector with Windows 10. It's by VGA Ports. It's like, man. Okay. Okay. I appreciate it. Whatever we can get going there. Okay, continuing here. What about those who do not believe? Those whom God has not elected or chosen? God is never to blame for anyone's rejection of Christ's claims. Let me have someone go to John 
43 to 44. And if you want that one, you can just raise your hand. Robert, and then John 5, 40. All right, thank you, Esther. And then Romans 1, 20. Sorry, Rachel, thank you. Appreciate it, Robert. Sorry. No, thank you, man. John 8, what? John 8, 43 to 44. John 5, 40. And then Romans 1, 20. Yes. Okay. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your wills do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Thank you. All right. Yet you refuse. Thirty-nine says you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. But you refuse to come. Again, God is never to blame for anyone's rejection of Christ's claims. From Romans one twenty. Thank you. So they are without excuse. So I wasn't really free won't be an excuse. In the context of Romans 1, well, you haven't shown yourself or revealed yourself to us. It's not an excuse. So they are without excuse in any way. John Calvin says, no man is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set open unto all men. Neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in, save only our own unbelief. A great quote there, and I think he hits it on the head. Save only our own unbelief. So again, is God really fair? It is important to understand what fair really is with respect to salvation. Indeed, it would be perfectly fair for God to save any human being who sinned and rebelled against him, just as he did with the angels. I'm sorry. It would be perfectly good for God not to save any human being who sinned and rebelled against him, just as he did with the angels. If he does save any human beings, then this is a demonstration of God's grace, which goes far beyond the requirements of fairness and justice. If God saved only five people out of the whole human race, this would be mercy and grace. If he saved 100 people, this would be amazing mercy and grace. But God, in fact, has decided to save a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is mercy beyond our comprehension. Paul raises this question sort of in a, in a deeper level in Romans 9. After saying that God has mercy on whom, whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, Paul then writes, you will say to me then, well, how does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In essence, Paul is giving voice to the very common question, if each person's ultimate destiny is determined by God, 
then how can this be fair? Even when people make willing choices determining whether they will be saved or not, if God is actually somehow behind those choices, then how can he be fair? Let's read his response in Romans 9, 20 to 24. Romans 9, verses 20 to 24. He says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter have no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is not here ducking the question. He's essentially saying, you are a finite creature and therefore vastly limited in your understanding of many, many things, especially in the area of God's sovereign will. God has done what he has done according to his sovereign will and purposes. He is the creator. You are the creatures. We ultimately have no basis from which to accuse him of unfairness or injustice. Our response to these words in Romans reveals a lot about our hearts and our willingness to submit to our sovereign creator. I think one who hears Paul here and responds with hostility may better need to understand two things. One is our creature limitations. We are, again, vastly limited. We do not understand. We don't even understand our own actions most of the time. We're speaking of the sovereign God who works every outcome to the end for which he determined it to work. Um, it is, it's, it, it's beyond us. And I think that person would need to understand a second thing, which is the fact that we would even have the audacity to wave our fist at God for his mercy and saving any shows the extent of our total depravity. This would not be the case in any other situation. No one waves their fist at the fireman who runs into the burning building and is able to save some, right? It's only when it comes to God that we have this, this natural hostility and disposition towards him. I wonder if I can do anything about that from here. <laughs> can someone run back there and hit close for me? Thank you, Will. Towards a fireman, 
where they were doing that, saving just a few. Right. They would respond with, it's not like God is in the case of the fireman where he's doing his best and he's trying his best to get as many as he can. Which he's is just limited. Right, right. God is not limited. So right. they would bring that up and say that that analogy doesn't work. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I thought about that. I mean, any example falls far short of God's purposes. But I think ultimately I would try to, and again, this is, this is it's, it's a mystery. Um, and I, I don't want to speak glibly or, um, you know, and in, in, in sympathetically about it. But um, I, I think it's trying to get those who we're conversing with about this back to um, our man's condition by nature before God and God's holiness, the fact that we, we have this disposition against God by nature, the fact that you by nature, you, you, you choose evil, you, you desire things that are um, opposite of God's holy character and helping them to see uh, the condition of man's heart and our total depravity. Um, again, this, 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 doesn't, this, is, this isn't going to answer all of their questions. And they say, okay, all right, good, I got it, that makes sense. But I think it's helpful to first start with them seeing just the, their, their condition before God um, in order to further highlight his grace in saving. Um, the fireman, would, 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 it, it falls far short of what God's doing. Even the example of a herd of pigs running joyfully off of a cliff falls far short of God's sovereign purposes in election. But I think um, getting at what the Bible gets at and highlighting what the Bible highlights about us being born into sin, this natural disposition, not only being by nature um, inheriting Adam's his condition and his guilt, but our actions attesting to the fact that we are sinners, us actually putting our hands to things that are sinful, putting our eyes to things that are sinful, and helping them to see their condition, their helpless, wretched condition may help at least in proportion, bring them low so that when they look up at the sovereignty and the electing purposes of God, uh, they look a little more rightly at it. So, I mean, that's I a good point, though. Good to, to address that, and then I think going back to what Paul said, where he, he's like, doesn't the potter have to, like, kind of accommodate to the clay or whatever, right. he can do whatever he wants with the lump. But right. then it says, well, what if God is desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? Right. So that's, like, the purpose of it. Right. Um, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So it's to show the wrath and to show his patience is the reason why he's letting some pigs fall off. Right. right, and it's not, and, and even that, I mean, you, you hear some, they would hold to a um, double predestination. Uh, some are God chooses them, and he chooses them uh, to, to be known by him, and he chooses some, and he chooses and purposes them for hell. The Bible does not attest to that. Um, the Bible says you are by nature your father by nature is uh, Satan, and you do, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, you do his will. And speaking of us in Ephesians chapter one, it says, you follow the prince, we follow the prince of the power of the air at one point, like the rest of mankind. So we desire these sinful things. And so it's not, and, and we just spoke about this a second ago, it is not, God is never to be blamed, James 1.14, for the sinfulness of men. So even 
the idea of double predestination, um, the, the scripture just, it doesn't attest to that. So, but that's a really good point, um, answering how the Bible answers. And then also admitting our own limitations as, as believers, we don't say that, we understand this fully. Yeah. Um, we say, Lord, help me to submit to your word. Um, some mysteries, many mysteries in the faith, we just won't get until we are in heaven. And even then we spend eternity grasping and growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Um, and so we humbly say, I, I don't have all the answers for this, um, but we do know what the Bible does say, and it's, it, that's black and white, and it's repent and turn from your sin and turn to the true and living God. Um, so we do know that's clearly there, and that is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not maybe think about it. It's repent and turn. So, um, but yeah, really good, good point. Good point. All right, I've got a, three more or two more slides here. Um, <clears throat> all right, so on this, does God want everyone to be saved? God desires all men to repent and turn from their sin. First Timothy 2.4 and then 2 Peter 3.9. I'll just read 1 Timothy 2.4. <clears throat> I'll start back up at verse 1. I think that gives us a bit more of the context. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Oftentimes, people who don't agree with the doctrine of election will say, well, based on this verse and those like these, that God desires to preserve man's free will more than he desires to save every person. But people who support the doctrine of election will say that God desires to further his glory more than he desires to save every person and that passages like Romans 9 indicate that his glory is furthered by saving some people, but not all. So Christians on both sides of the debate agree that, nobody, that not everybody will be saved. How then can both sides say that God desires everybody to be saved in accordance with verses like 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9? These verses tell us that God commands people to do what, I'm sorry, that what God commands people to do and what actions please him, namely repenting and believing in Christ. In this sense, he truly desires all men to be saved. This is what is sometimes called his revealed will, what he tells everybody on earth should do. But such verses are not talking about God's secret hidden plans from all eternity to choose some people to be saved. MacArthur says on this that God genuinely desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, yet in the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, he chose only the elect out of the world, John 17, 6, and passed over the rest, leaving them in their damning consequence of their sin, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Since God desires all men to be saved, excuse me, 
we are not required to ascertain that a person is elect before praying, which I think is the context of 1 Timothy 2.4, praying for those persons' salvation. God alone knows who all his elect are. We may pray on behalf of all men with full assurance that such prayers are good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior. After all, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in his loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. He is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. I think part, oh, go ahead. Yeah, in Veritas, Rick. Okay. If I had remembered correctly, um, they, or Pastor was saying that all people refer to not all people, but a group within. Right, so all, and I was actually talking to Pastor Rick last night about this. <laughs> we were walking through it again. I was like, how oh, should I navigate through this? But um, all, all people, all classes, all distinctions, which in the context you see says kings, those in high places, so from the, lowest, from the highest of them to the lowest of them, God has those who are known by him. So he says, pray for all people and all classes and all the distinctions, right? So it, it's not, it, it, it's, I think that fits the context of that. But I don't think that's apart from the fact that God desires um, that we, one, pray that all people would, that, that God would draw men to himself, because you see that in 2 Timothy as well. But um, also that God, we, we pray and we pray that God does call men to himself. And, and we're going to talk about this in, in a little bit as well. This, this place is where we see all and world and all and everyone. Um, if reading the context, it makes clear what's being spoken of as far as these, these all and world and everyone. Usually when this is uh, talked about in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, um, all or the world um, is a reference to not just, he's saying it's not just for Jews, it's, it's for Gentiles as well. So he's just, I want to make a side note on this. He's, he's just saying it goes beyond just Jews, right? For God so loved the world. It's not just Jews, it's Gentiles that whosoever right? So world, whosoever, he's, he's spreading it beyond just Jews being saved. Um, and I think in this context in, in 1 Timothy 2, he is, that, that's a great point. It is praying for all and all classes and distinctions and all, which I think would include all peoples uh, broadly. So I heard, I saw, a, was that Rachel? Did you have your hand up? No? Okay. All right, so we know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Um, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Jesus wept and was grieved over men's sin. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The love that God gives us for all fellow human beings and the love that he commands us to have for our neighbors cause us great sorrow when we see them enslaved to sin. And yet, the punishment of sinners is a righteous outer working of God's justice, and we should not think that it is wrong. Right? The punishment of sinners is the outer working of God's justice. Again, back to the confession, being praised for his glorious grace and being praised for his glorious justice. I think it was, who was it? I think it was. He said that when we get to heaven and our perspective is uh, it's, it's clean, our, our skewed perspective is straightened, and we, he's sort of speaking hypothetically, if we're able to, to, to see um, even the, the death of someone that we knew or a loved one, and, and we, we see God's justice displayed, he said only at that time will we be able to rejoice rightly and, dis- and rejoice and praise God for his justice because we understand that God has done all things according to the counsel of his good will. Um, and again, I don't want to say that glibly, but I think he does make a point there that we, we, we are finite, we are limited creatures and things like this are they really are beyond us, but we have to stand where the Bible stands. We proclaim the gospel now. We're burdened for men. We want to see men saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we take opportunities and we share the gospel and we hand out tracts and we have conversations with people and we go out of our way to proclaim the gospel. And at the same time, we understand that God works all things according to the purpose of his will and his good counsel. Um, is always ever good and will always ever stand. Our last point here, it's all grace. <laughs> all right. Sanctification, man. This slide, this is a means of sanctification. It's projected. All right. Um, it's all grace. The doctrine of election demonstrates to us that God loved us not for who we are or what we have done or will do, but simply because he decided to love us. Uh, 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, wrath-bearing substitute for our sins. Titus 3.5 again, he saved us not according to works done by us in righteousness. And that's interesting, not according to works done by us even in righteousness. No, that's, that, that's not why I save you. But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the appropriate response to God is to give him praise for all eternity. Our appropriate response to others is humility since individually we have no claim on any portion of God's grace. It is all a gift from him. It's all a gift from him. 